worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Fighting through episode 18. International Podcast Day Special. More grace unpublished history. I'm Paul Chielson of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. My dad was a soldier in the Green Howards, a northern British regiment with a proud and prestigious fighting history. Dad fought throughout the war from Dunkirk through to Sicily, North Africa D-Day and finally Hamburg, winning seven medals and a wounded in action stripe. The aim of my show is to give you snippets from my dad's book, as well as some fascinating memoirs and memories from his so-called British band of brothers. So you'll be hearing a lot of great unpublished history with some very fine writing. There are some staggeringly good tales to tell about flying Lancasters, winning a military medal on D-Day, captaining a ship during Dunkirk and many more all true and far more intriguing than any fiction. So get your tissues out, fasten your life belts and get ready for a whirlwind of World War II memoirs and more. The British Empire and the French Republic linked together in their cause and in their need will defend to the death their native soil aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender, and if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Hello again. I wish you a warm welcome back, or a warm welcome if this is your first listen to the Fighting Through podcast show. I hope you enjoyed listening to Winston's Beaches speech. I think it's such a good scene-setter for what's to come. My aim of this episode is to run through the show's progress since the start and replay highlights from all the episodes so you'll have a chance to revisit my own favourite bits, plus I'll be throwing in a few new extras to keep you entertained, and that includes a few bloopers that I'm going to play for you. I also want to mention uh, just a small part of my journey in producing this podcast, 
because it's brought such joy to me and I've learnt a lot on the way. It's going to be a very long show, so I hope that's okay. You can always stop for tiffin halfway through. How's this for starters? On that fine Sunday morning of September the 3rd, 1939, when at 11am the Prime Minister announced over the wireless that a state of war existed between Great Britain and Germany, there were thousands of men living peaceably in the North Riding of Yorkshire, who never dreamed that in the course of the next six years, fate would lead them to widely scattered regions of the earth, men from the Dales and from the rich central plain of York, men from the mines of Cleveland and from the industrial town of Middlesbrough, from the market towns of Thirsk and Northallerton, and from the seaside towns of Scarborough, Redcar, Whitby and Bridlington, all joined or rejoined the Green Howard family. Those who were too old proudly took up arms in 1940 as members of the Home Guard, ready to face any invader who should dare to attempt to put a foot on Yorkshire soil. You've just heard a bit of narrative from Captain W.A.T. Singe, who wrote a book called The Story of the Green Howard, 1939-45. It was based on the diaries and records of my dad's regiment, the Green Howards, a northern English regiment with a very fine fighting history. I love that narrative. It reminds me of something Tolkien might have written to describe how the hobbits would have risen to defend their homelands against the evil Lord of Mordor. It's such an exquisite description of how those northern British boys took up arms. And when I introduce myself at the start of each show as Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, there's always a hint of the ironic in my mind, as if I want you to picture me standing there with some ancient battle-axe held up over my shoulders. Anyway, if you've never heard of Lord of the Rings, you'll wonder what the heck I'm on about, so I'll crack on. In a minute we're going to hear how my show originally started with an extract from chapter one of Dad's book on the beaches of Dunkirk in 1940. But first I'd like to quickly give you a bit of background to this podcast and how it came about. My late dad wrote his memoirs years ago and at one point the family did try to get them published without success. Then at some point I found the time to tidy them up into one volume and through sheer luck and persistence managed to get the book published by Publishers Pen and Sword. At pretty much the same time I built a website to promote the book and I posted photos and other stuff that I'd got. In 2013 I somehow discovered podcasting and thought, there's a good idea, I'll have a go at that as a way to promote the book. So here's an extract from the first episode I ever did from Dad's book about his traumatic time on the Dunkirk beaches. This is from Chapter 1 of Dad's Memoir. Episode 1. The Dunkirk Beaches. Looking for Bray Dune. May 1940. Britain and her allies were at war with Germany. We had orders to retreat to the coast to a place called Bray Dune, near Dunkirk, in order to evacuate back to England. It seemed to have taken a very long time, but after some hours and twelve miles we saw a cluster of buildings in the distance and added a little more haste to our walking. We were surprised that our destination seemed no larger than a seaside village. Eventually we came upon one main road through the centre of the village, rather shabby and uncared for, which was understandable. It looked just like Dodge City, 
but it was great to us. It was Bray Doon, and we were very pleased to have sight of it, but other troubles were very soon to descend upon us. We walked down the sand-blown main street, and at the end came to a small promenade overlooking the sea. Not a soul was in sight apart from our lads. We turned left and walked along this narrow promenade. It had a wooden rail along the seaward side, and there was a six-foot drop to the beach. We stood out and looked at the sea which could mean our salvation. The other side of that water was England. Oh, that lovely sea, with England just on the other side. How simple. We walked to the end of the promenade, about two hundred yards, which led onto the deep soft sand followed by huge six-foot sandbanks. The sea was about two hundred yards away from the high-water mark, and both east and west the beach was very flat. The accompanying sight which greeted us will forever live in our memories. On that beach running both ways, there were many tens of thousands of khaki-clad figures milling around for as far as we could see, but there was nowhere to go, and there were columns of soldiers three deep, going out to sea up to their shoulders, trying to get onto the small boats to take them to England. It was 30th of May. Many of the boys on the beach were in a sorry state. The Stukas had just been over. Dead soldiers and those badly wounded lay all over the place, and many of the wounded would die. It was tragic to see life ebbing away from young, healthy lives, and we could not do a thing about it. It was heartbreaking. What few stretcher-bearers there were always gave of their best. They were extraordinary. How does one quantify devotion to duty under the conditions which prevailed in those days? The folk at home could not possibly have any idea what their boys were going through. There was no panic, just haste. We joined this mass of tired and hungry lads. Amidst all this tragedy, the Stukas would return, machine-gunning the full length of the thousands of men. They could not miss, and a swathe of dead and wounded would be left behind. Really, it was awful. Many of us fired our rifles at the planes, but they were useless. Nobody can imagine what it's like to be bombed by a German Stuka. They came out of the sky, screaming straight down, then dropped their bombs and pulled up into the sky again. I don't know why we ran. It was just instinct, I suppose. Near the shoreline, one boy of about twenty, not far from me, had his stomach ripped open, and he was fighting to live, asking for his mum and crying. A few of us went to him, but he was too bad for us to help him. Blood was everywhere. The poor boy soon died out of pain to join his mates. It's the most dreadful experience to see a comrade killed in such a way. Some young lads who'd lost their nerve went crazy and lay on the sand crying. Others knelt and prayed. Mind you, I'm sure we all prayed in our own way. No one, of course, could help behaving like this. It was just because of the trauma they'd endured and had at last given way to their feelings. The near impossibility of getting back to England left many of us rather stunned, as it did not look possible. Our lads, or what was left of our battalion, stuck together among the sand dunes to obtain some protection from the bombing and strafing. We'd had nothing to eat except hard tack biscuits and bully beef. We hadn't had a hot meal for God knows how long, and the lads who normally shaved looked really haggard. A sleepless night was ahead of us, 
There was no plan of action, and even the officers seemed to be showing signs of tension. At about midnight, we heard a plane coming, but it was not a bomber. It was dropping parachute flares, and suddenly it was as light as day and eerie and fluorescent. Very quickly, the Stukas came over, doing their killing, flying the length of the beach, and we dug even deeper into the sand. Lads on the beach were running all over the place, but there was nowhere to go. I don't know why God was allowing this to happen, yet I saw so many boys praying to him on their knees. The morning eventually came, and we were very cold, hungry, and utterly miserable, but there was no let-up from our discomfort. I was beside Major Petch, and he said, Come along, Cheel. I want to see if I can find somebody in authority to give guidance to us. In the distance, we could see what must be Dunkirk. The five miles walk there, exhausted as we were, seemed like fifty on the soft sand, which played havoc with tired legs. Ahead of us, I could see the oil tanks with black smoke and flames pouring from them after they'd been bombed. We could see ships out at sea making their way from Dunkirk to England, and we could also see the dive bombers after the ships. To our horror, many other ships had been sunk, their funnels and superstructures sticking out of the water. It was a ship's graveyard, and it looked dreadful. Eventually our column reached the pier, or East Mall as it was called, and we waited in a long queue until it was possible for us to board a ship. Really it's almost unbelievable, but even when we were attacked by planes, we didn't move in case we lost our place in the column. There by the side of the jetty, a ship was waiting to be loaded with human cargo. We walked along the wooden pier, and back came the planes. It seemed never-ending, trying to bomb our ship, but without success. We walked along for about half a mile to the ship we would be boarding. Miraculously, the mole was still intact, but there was a six-foot gap in the planking where a bomb had gone through without exploding, and loose planks had been put across. Some lads, in their desperate hurry, chose to jump the gap with their full kit on. Luckily, none fell through into the water. Another thirty yards, and we came to our ship. At the top end of a gangway stood an officer, counting soldiers as they went aboard. The ship was a ferry ship called the Lady of Man. How could I forget that name? How lucky we considered ourselves to be. Out of all those thousands of men, we were being given the opportunity to be evacuated. Suddenly I heard the Stuckers returning, screaming down almost vertically. I saw bombs leaving one of the planes and was certain our time had come and that this was the end. As the bombs came tumbling out of the sky towards us, my life flashed before me and in an instant I relived every moment of my time since just before the start of the war when life had seemed so good. Listener, do you remember when you were a kid at school and the teacher used to read to you as a class and you'd just get to an exciting bit and he'd call an end to it till next time and you'd all chorus, Oh, sir! Well, I think we've just had an Oh, sir! moment. So you can find out a bit more about that uh, passage by listening to episode one. Better still, buy Dad's book, Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg, hard book or e-book. 
Episode 9 was another Dunkirk diary by Dad's commanding officer, Major Petch, and there was a tragic anecdote where he talked about digging trenches in the sand dunes. Captain Carmichael later told us that all the men dug out holes in the sand to hide from the bombing of the German planes. They dug one for him, but when he arrived, two young, frightened soldiers from another battalion were hiding in it, and he said that they could stay there and he would go over the dune. Sadly, a mortar landed in the hole, and they were both killed. Listener, I'd like to leave Major Petch on a more positive note, so here's another anecdote from his memoir. There was considerable confusion throughout the Dunkirk campaign, with the enemy tanks continually getting round to our rear. One night our transport sergeant got lost, and knocked on the door of a tank to ask the way. A Hun opened the door. I was... (laughs) I was... Our sergeant fled on his bike unharmed. If you get a chance to read my episode 9 on Major Petch, do so. It's proving one of my most popular. Here's a little feedback about Dad's Bray June passage from one listener who gave me a lot of encouragement in my early podcasting days. I found the podcast on iTunes and it is stunning. I'm listening to it now with tears in my eyes. Your father's story has brought history alive and your reading of his diaries is a wonderful tribute to him. The young boys were so brave. Thank you, Victoria, Brisbane, Australia. Thank you, Victoria, and thanks to the many other people who have encouraged me enormously with positive feedback. Listener, if you happen to go to the French battlegrounds and choose to take in Bredoun, I can tell you it really is interesting you'll see the beaches the sand dunes uh, dunkirk five miles in the distance if you want to walk um my dad and so many other troops struggle to get to dunkirk on those tiring sands and there's even an, an abandoned gun emplacement that i remember my dad pointing out and saying that it hadn't been there in 1940 when he was there but had been erected later as part of Rommel's so-called Atlantic Wall to defend against Allied invasion. So it's quite an interesting little spot. It's quite hard to find the beaches, but if you have sat-nav with GPS, then nip to my show notes and dig out the coordinates I've supplied you, and you'll drive straight to the spot. It's interesting that of my first three episodes... The third one about D-Day was always the most popular until recently when my Dunkirk episode has shot to the top of the league table but uh, that's no doubt been ably assisted by the recent release of the movie. So in 2013 I produced just three episodes and of course around this time the memoirs of other people connected to Dad had begun to drift in. So those first three episodes weren't just about Dad, they were from other comrades whom I came into contact with, one of whom is still alive today in 2017 and that's veteran Wilf Shaw from whom we're going to hear later. Battle of Wadiakarit, episode 2. This is one of my favourites. It's about the Battle of Wadiakarit in 1943 in Tunisia. Uh, to my mind, it's World War II's forgotten battle. A more brutal battle is hard to imagine, 
and the day's action cost the 8th Army 600 dead and three times that were maimed or wounded. The Allies needed command of North Africa in order to control the Mediterranean and so pose a threat to Italy and southern France. The enemy, led by Rommel, was making a stand amongst some hills near Wadi Akarit, a dried-up riverbed. They had to be sent packing, to use General Montgomery's words. The enemy were holed up in some hills with very strong defences, including an anti-tank ditch the Allies had to cross to even get to most of the enemy. But even to get there they had to cross a flat open plain for several thousand yards, taking Point 85, a small hill also known as the Pimple, in the process. So this fight was the enemy's last major stand against the Allies before they were turfed out of North Africa for good. My dad described the battle as follows. The enemy were ensconced in hills in the distance, only four miles away, and the plan of attack was as follows. The enemy held a good, strong position, overlooking our every move on the perfectly flat plain over which we were to advance. The hills were rather steep at the front. Running along the length of the front of the lower ground was an anti-tank ditch about six feet deep and eight feet wide, the whole area being mined and barbed wired. We were given all the necessary information relating to the attack, with strict instructions to give the buggers hell. We crossed the start line at all 400 hours on a lovely moonlit night. Everything was so quiet at this early hour and then, all of a sudden, as if somebody had pressed a switch, everything came to life as our 25-pounders opened up and we moved forward at a steady walking pace. We were led by our officers onto the flat plain, devoid of trees, and kept a distance of four or five yards apart. Advancing at a steady walking pace towards our objective, we'd gone about one mile when the enemy let us know that he was expecting us and was responding accordingly. Shells began to fall a little way in front of us, then behind us, and then amongst us. He'd found the range, with the result that some of the lads began to fall, wounded, killed, at times blown to smithereens. We were now attacking as platoons and sections, and our section, led by Lance Corporal Coughlin, bending low to the ground, moved to the right, and we had to tread warily, because we were very often overlooked. We must have advanced about 200 yards, not realising that we were being observed from a concealed trench. All of a sudden machine gun fire came from our right, and Coughlin, who was next to me on my right, dropped dead in an instant. It was an awful experience, seeing poor Coughlin's life being ended so suddenly. For a moment, we couldn't believe it. Then my rage was up, and I, being the senior soldier, took command. It all happened in seconds, and I shouted to the other lads to keep firing towards the enemy trench on the hillside, to make them keep their heads down. Angry, I grabbed poor Coughlin's submachine gun and shouted, Come on, lads, charge the bastards! Send them to hell, but keep firing, and don't forget your grenades! Firing as I was running, I killed the first Italian who showed his head. When we were about ten yards away, we'd reached the top of the slit trench and we killed the survivors, five of them cowering in the bottom of the trench. It was no time for pussyfooting. We were consumed with rage and had to kill them 
to pay for our fallen pal. We were so intoxicated we could not hold back, as given the chance they would have killed us. This much I'd learnt at Dunkirk. No quarter given, and those Italians paid the supreme penalty. It was almost impossible to believe that a healthy young man's life could be ended in a split second. Only a few minutes before I was talking to Coughlin, now he was dead. That event is still imprinted in my thoughts as if it were yesterday. And every year, on the 6th of April, I think of the Battle of Wadi Akrit, way back in 1943. Bill Cheel, 6th Green Howards, 1994. Well, listener, if you thought that was scary, he's uh, one of the scariest bits in my entire show, taken from the Wadi Akrit episode. A patrol went out that night. Lance Corporal Joe Ryder of Spennymore went with them. He was a long-term member of 2 Platoon and told us afterwards how they'd penetrated the enemy positions and encountering an enemy patrol had lain doggo. A member of the enemy patrol had put a foot on Joe's hand as he lay there. Both men knew that if either of them raised the alarm, they would be dead. So they ignored one another, and the moment passed. Brian Moss, Sergeant, Royal Engineers. Now, I want to share with you a real favourite of mine, and I have to say how absolutely blessed I feel to be on the receiving end of so many equally fine wartime works. This is quite a long passage, but I make no apology for that. I'd like to think I'm spoiling you rotten giving you all these favourite bits from my show, but in no small way I think I'm indulging myself too, because this next passage is just fab. This is a detailed account from the above-mentioned Sergeant Brian Moss, who bravely filled the crucial anti-tank ditch which barred the Allied troops' access to the hills where they would attack the enemy. We were officially informed that day that we were to be involved in a set-piece attack and that one of our tasks would be the anti-tank ditch. On the afternoon of 5th of April, we were told to roll up our beds and other gear and leave them in our trenches. We were to parade in battle order after the evening meal. I exercised the men on blowing an anti-tank ditch. This was a drill that we'd perfected at Mereth. Our drill included digging out holes on the enemy side and inserting tins of aminal, ammonium nitrate mixed with aluminium powder. On exploding, this would crack off an enormous triangular chunk of earth which would drop into the ditch and fill it. At dusk, we climbed aboard our truck and jolted slowly away to Battalion HQ, the 7th Green Howards. What were we doing at 7th Green Howards, I wondered. Two platoons supported the 5th each Yorks. There we stood in a line where, once again, a tablespoonful of overproof rum was poured down our throats. What was this for? We couldn't imagine, since we were not supposed to be going in until 4.30am. Still, no one refused the tot that CSM nobs poured into us. We were told to get some sleep. This we did by lying on the bare earth surrounded by infantry who were also attempting to sleep. Their carrier was nearby and was loaded to the brim with ammo, water and mortar bombs. I recall that night as extremely noisy. At 11am I was rudely awakened 
Dudley stood over my slit trench, grinning down at me. Come on, Sergeant Moss, he said. You've got to blow the anti-tank ditch. Oh, yes, the ditch. I scrambled out, wondering why he'd said you have got to blow the ditch and not we. I could have done with another six hours sleep, but there was no time for that now. Dudley had already assembled fifteen men, a white armoured scout car and a three-tonner. The truck carries tools and explosives as well as men. We all climbed aboard and Dudley led the way in a jeep. I suppose our destination would be about a mile to the left of point 85, an area of peculiar circular lumps about 100 feet in diameter and 15 feet high, sticking up here and there above the general ground level. We parked the transport in the lee of one of these lumps since the area was under shell fire. Dudley suggested that five men be left behind until I was ready, and then they could bring up the explosive, which was in heavy crates. The remainder of us proceeded on foot directly towards the hills, carrying picks and shovels. I think the shelling was fifteen centimetres stuff. They came in screaming and exploded on the iron hard ground, throwing splinters hundreds of yards. We progressed, therefore, in a pattern of diving, crawling and scrambling. We were just the quick and the dead. If you weren't quick, you were dead. There was also a new noise in the sky. A pumping, howling wail accompanied by wobbling smoke trails in the sky, racing towards us and terminating in horrendous explosions. This was the first time I saw a naval verfer in action. I was impressed. Still, since I was drained of nervous energy by the affair at dawn, I felt no fear at all and I examined the torn-off rocket tubes of the naval verfers with interest. It was evident that fifth each Yorks had been hard hit here. Torn and dismembered bodies lay everywhere. Most wore balaclava helmets. It was later said that their leading companies suffered 70% casualties here. I was leading ten men up into the shell fire. Then we saw enemy bunkers to the left and to the right. At fifty yards we saw weapons pointing at us, but we thought they were unmanned. I steered a course through these bunkers that I thought a tank could follow. After going for another sixty yards, there was the ditch. It was the usual kind of Italian ditch, the kind I'd once spent the night in elsewhere. Fifth East Yorks had cut step holes in the sides to enable men to climb them. I looked around for the best place to blow it. Although I didn't know it at the time, Fifth East Yorks were only just in front of us, held up by heavy fire. The fire to which we were subjected was aimed at Fifth East Yorks. I settled on a good place and decided to take out a shovel-width trench, ten feet back from the edge of the ditch on the enemy side. I set the lads digging with the picks and shovels that they'd carried up there, and you should have seen them go at it. Their picks whirled and thudded, and their shovels hurled out the earth in fine style. To the rear, I could see tiny figures back there, struggling up through the shell bursts with heavy crates. I waved so they could see where we were. The work was going well, so I detached three men to help move up the explosives. We finished the trench to a depth of three feet and a length of eight yards, and we prepared everything for the explosives. A shell burst suddenly obscured two carriers, and we were sure they must have been killed. But, when the smoke cleared, they were still struggling towards us. We tore open the crates as they arrived, wrenching out the black tins of aminal. 
recalling an instructor's words, I laughed like a maniac and yelled, Amaral must not come into contact with naked steel, as I ripped off the circular tin lids with a bayonet. We placed the open tins in the trench. I knotted primers onto lengths of primer cord, burying a primer in the contents of each tin. I then taped each length of primer cord to a main of the same material, arranging for the separate lengths to enter the main at a sweet curve, which the detonating wave could safely follow. A detonator and two minutes of safety fuse completed my arrangements. The lads had been backfilling the trench while I worked. It was now time to blow the ditch. I sent all men into cover in the enemy bunkers. Then I did something that even now makes me laugh. <laughs> I took out my whistle and blew a long blast signifying an imminent explosion. In view of what was dropping all around us, this was ludicrous and would not be heard anyway. I placed a match head on the obliquely cut safety fuse. You always cut the fuse on the slant. I stroked the matchbox across the match head and the fuse started to burn. Then I too found a bunker. In due course, there was an earth shock and a rumble. Stones fell all around. Then I peeped out. The blast had been remarkably successful. The sharp, deep V had gone. The ditch was more than three quarters filled and the lip of the enemy side had disappeared. It was time for bent shovels. The bent shovel was a long-handled Egyptian shovel, the steel neck of which had been heated and bent so that the blade was at right angles to the shaft. Each man had carried one of these as well as a pick or general service shovel and his rifle. We went like hell at that crossing with the bent shovels. With this kind of shovel you drag loosened earth towards you. We drag filled down towards the middle of the ditch and within five minutes had shaped it into a gentle curve. Damn good job, said Wally Douglas, and I agreed with him. Someone yelled and we looked back. Five hundred yards behind us, an endless stream of Shermans was approaching. The small figure directing them towards us was undoubtedly Lieutenant Dudley. These tanks were ten corps. The Shermans were painted a colour that was almost white. We stood there watching the approaching tanks and making last-minute adjustments to our work. The first tank arrived, hesitated, and then lurched down into the crossing and roared triumphantly up onto the other side. The crossing worked. I indicated to the driver the way forward and off it went. Fifth East Yorks would soon be much happier. A second tank crossed, then a third, the crossing was improving with every tank that went over. The edges were being crumbled off and the whole affair was looking better by the minute. At the time, I assumed that Ten Corps crossed the ditch at several places. Many years later, I read that they crossed in only one place, so I came to understand how important my crossing had been. This was possibly the most important thing I ever did during the war. Brian Moss, Sergeant, 233 Field Company, Royal Engineers.
Listener, I'd just like to add there what a gross understatement that was about possibly the most important thing he ever did during the war. When I listened to his other material when he was fighting at Wadi Akarat and particularly landing on Gold Beach on D-Day, it kind of leaves me speechless. Listener, I wanted to try and shorten that passage for you, but uh, I couldn't find a suitable juncture to break it up. There was such a tension building. And how good was that when the first tank rolled across that ditch? Just brilliant. There's a short epilogue to the Wadi Akrit episode I'd like to share with you. It's about an experienced dad had shortly after the battle when he was ordered to bury some of the dead. After the meal, another boy and I were detailed to go and bury one of our lads who'd been killed. It was too hot to leave bodies lying around, and the stretcher-bearers were busy taking care of the wounded, so off we went with our entrenching tools. Although I'd seen a good many dead soldiers, I'd never been called upon to bury one. Unfortunately, there was no body as such, only the gruesome remains. It had been blown to pieces... The legs and one arm were lying yards away. There was no face, and the body was ripped apart. Never before had I seen anything like it, and I found it very difficult to contain myself. We dug a shallow grave in the stony ground, and put the torn limbs into it. Then I found the identity discs, and to my horror, I found the dead boy to be Arthur Oxley, one of my best pals on the Queen Mary. We looked around for any other things belonging to Arthur and found half of a green Howard cap badge. It was twisted by the blast and I still have it as a memory of my pal. I don't know how I contained my emotions at that moment. Together we made a cairn of stones on the grave, hoping that it would be found. Though it was such a lonely hillside, I didn't think it would be discovered. We left one identity disc with the body the other we took back to our officer to whom we explained what we'd done. So, listener, I still have the twisted cat badge of Arthur Oxley. He's one of Dad's comrades whose family I've never been able to track down. If you'd like to see the cat badge and perhaps contemplate a moment of remembrance for Arthur, take a look at the show notes later at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. My third episode was about D-Day and again by this point some of the memoirs were being sent to me. Um, I'm going to pick up on D-Day shortly but after those first three episodes in 2013 for nearly three years, 2014 to 16, I did nothing. Um, I got a steady stream of downloads which was quite small when I look back but at the time I thought, well that's not bad. It was about 15 to 20 per day total. Sometimes, uh, such as on D-Day anniversaries, um, they peaked to two or three times that and then fell back again. But the main thing was that they remained steady for that three years, neither rising nor falling significantly. Um, Eventually, I decided podcasts were worth persevering with and I thought I'd produce some more episodes. I think the inspiration came from a, a UK guru Colin Gray who had a habit of putting out his own episodes which essentially encouraged people to start a podcast Um, so in the end in 2016 I thought all right and I took some steps to go up a gear I bought some better equipment and took a careful look at my production quality and the structure of the show and ever since then it's been a process of gradual improvement with better intros a bit of music better mic 
and uh, a few little tweaks here and there as I thought of new ideas. Uh, I'm not sure they were all my own ideas, uh, more stuff I'd heard and repurposed through listening repeatedly to people like Colin and American gurus Daniel J. Lewis and Dave Jackson. But gradually I've honed my show and here I am and 12 months later I'm producing episode 18 of the Fighting Through podcast. I don't think I'll ever fade out, so don't worry about that, listener. Whoever gets fed up doing something, they enjoy as much as I do this. Um, There's no shortage of material and every now and again up pops another memoir that's just crying out to be read. I'm now going to skip forward a little bit to episode four to uh, cover an interview I did with Wilf Shaw, who's a veteran of World War II. Um, I met Wilf through the internet. He's in his 90s and still trespassing, as Wilf himself puts it. He once wrote to me out of the blue, having spotted my website, which is dedicated to extracts from Dad's book, and it's adorned with photos and memoirs connected with the Green Howard's veterans. So, as a tech guru granddad, Wilf soon tracked me down and got in touch. He was wounded twice in action and still went back to fight with his comrades. In the recent past, he's been awarded the Légion d'Honneur, which is France's highest medal of honour, and that was for his contribution to the Normandy campaign. Wilf's an amazing character who was in the Green Howards, the same regiment as my dad, and because they fought in the same battles, speaking to Wilf has got to be the next best thing to chatting to my dad. So a lot of the questions I'd like to ask dad um, I've been able to put to Wilf. And I've done so with gusto, having met him several times now over in Manchester. So I now have a load of material to share in future episodes of the show, including Wilf's memoir, Bright Burns the Memory. The first time we met, I asked Wilf where he liked to meet, and he suggested a certain large department store's restaurant coffee bar. I'd never been there before, but I thought, uh, yeah... should be quiet and comfortable enough. Little did I know just how noisy it was going to be, with screaming children, overzealous waitresses cleaning up crockery, etc. But luckily, I got some reasonable recording equipment which picked up the conversation, and without without the worst of the background racket. And I do think the informal environment helped us both to relax and brought out the better of Wolf's stories than would have been the case in a quiet studio for instance my favorite part of that meeting with wolf was also one of the funniest war stories i've ever heard this is what i call the latrine story i'll tell you something that happened it probably isn't worth repeating in any doing all right i'm uh, i'm still afraid of the long arm of the army you see okay i'll tell you something that happened we've stood two one night at Gazali. and I'm stood in a trench with Peter McKenna and we used to stand for an hour at stand two at night you know surfing right. time stand two yeah. and me, uh, me, me rifle and uh, I was doing a pretend doing you know aiming yeah. supposing that were just lining your gun up I, yeah. I was trying the what do you call the First and second pressure on the finger. Right. Anyway, I'm pointing this at the latrine, you know. <laughs> right. And all at once, I must have pulled the trigger too bloody hard. 
And the and I, and I, I fired me, I, I fired, I fired a shot off, you know. Right. And they were bloody panic, panic, and uh, Sergeant come and said, "Did you hear a shot?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, what?" He said, "Over there." <laughs> <laughs> but the, the funny part was, all he had to do was pick up. Pick, take my rifle off me and feel like it, and he, he'd, he'd, he'd have known yeah. the heat because yeah. the, the barrel was still yeah. warm. You know. Maybe so, he uh, gave you the benefit. So of I remember he booted off and Peter McKenna said, yeah. He said, With a bloody stupid sod show, you know. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to say you shot somebody so in the backside. I, I hesitate to tell that to anybody, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, the next time I went to the latrines, it. Uh, it proved the accuracy of my uh, doings. There was a bu- actually a bullet hole right through the middle of the Oh, God. Well, if you're struggling to find the, the most humorous story during your war, Wolf, I, just, I think you just found it. <laughs> oh, dear. This leads me to my first blooper of the uh, show, because to- towards the end of the meeting with Wolf, uh, we were both lamenting the state of the world and whether all the fighting had been worth it. Uh, what's better today than yesterday, Wolf was asking. An innocent question, but it was followed by a scary and totally unplanned result. It makes you think that what, what you went and blokes died for and were prepared to lay their life down for... You'd, you'd have thought we'd, we'd have made some kind of progression, but uh, still fighting. You, you just strife. have to ask yourself, you know, was it all worthwhile? Yeah. You can't help. You can't help but uh, share the feelings of a lot of people who, who say it, well, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't. It was never worthwhile. You know. I guess um, to me. Not not being directly involved in this, obviously, but I'm sure we've got a better world than we would have had had we not won the war. You think so? Well, would have been would have had the Nazis in charge of us, wouldn't uh, we? Um, the worst had come to the worst. That is. I tell you a question. My Michael, my son, asked me. He said to me last time. He said, "Can you tell me something today that's better than it was 50 years ago?" funny just had a little message pop up on my phone as almost an answer to that which is just sort of recognizing the fact that we've got the internet now we didn't used to have the internet but we'll we'll discard that thought um yeah it's a good question isn't it so there you go <laughs> any budding podcasters don't forget to turn your phone off during a recording session because i guarantee you won't have the same billion to one chance of luck that i did with your timing um but uh, any humorous overtones to wolf's engaging storytelling are undoubtedly overshadowed by his tale of fighting in the desert in the battle of el alamein but yeah that's El Alamein, that's the more frightening experience I've had during the war. I'm talking about the main one, the main on the, on the yes. 23rd of October. Right. How the hell I got through that, I just do not know. I, there was about the section advancing to this uh, 
the new challenge. And there must have been 50 or 70 yards away initially. Right. But we were behind a bit of a ridge here. And then we got the order to advance. And I was extreme right. Oddly enough, the chap next to me was another chap from Oldham. Yeah. Called uh, Bill Diddle. And uh, these uh, breeders opened up on us. The Italian breeder one. And... Uh, Oh, bloody chaos, and we all hit the deck. Diggle next to me, being hit across, across here in his mouth. And uh, I flung myself on the ground and put the rim of my steel helmet in the ground like that. Sure, yeah. I got a, a bullet straight through, the, straight through the front of the steel helmet. And it, it, it knocked the metal back and dropped on the camouflage. And me, like a fool, I threw, I threw the bullet away in a bit of a mad temper, you know, yeah. I put, put my hand in. You should have kept it as a souvenir. It was the following day after, after the episode with the doings. With the helmets, right. I was moved to another sec, uh, another uh, platoon. Yeah. And uh, there was, I had to go into action again, uh, do the same thing as I'd done the night before. Yeah. And... Uh, we were move, moving along and, and uh, the shelling started and flung myself on the ground and the next thing I knew, my arm went round my head somewhere and I'd been it in my armpit here and came out the front here. Yeah. So, Have you still got the scars from it? Yeah. yeah. And because yeah. you, you got wounded in the foot in another yeah, battle, yeah, you? Yeah, the one in my foot, it went straight through the boot. Right. Straight through my boot and my... Uh, the part that sticks down, that's called oscalsis. Yeah. Your heel bone, in another word. And such was the force, it went straight through and out the other side. Yeah. I got up and started walking and somebody come to me and said, to this day I can't, I can't believe I got, through, I got through that. Yeah. Episode five was an interview I did with Claude Reynolds whom I'd made friends with before I even realised he'd only been a rear gunner in a Lancaster. Claude had more stories than Heinz have varieties, and one day he let me interview him. That was before I'd even heard of podcasts. I just thought it would be a bit of fun, and little did I realise what I'd make use of with the recording in future. The one thing I could kick myself about regarding my dad's memoirs that I'd never spent even three minutes recording anything he reminisced about and of course it's too late now. So listener, if you have an elderly relative or even a a middle-aged relative I'd recommend just one weekend instead of going to the footy or the baseball or the beach take some time out and talk to them. Record it on anything you have. It really doesn't matter that much. Talk to them, talk to them about their youth, their job their successes, failures, concerns, uh, the joys and, of course, their military experience. Anything, really, because in 50, year, in 50 years' time, you or your children might just find it fascinating and useful for any number of things. Now, Claude, he was a rear gunner in a World War II Lancaster, and here's a few tales he's told me. This first uh, extract is Claude talking about uh, being in quite a dodgy situation, flying on a Lancaster, and telling me how cold it was. 
are there any particularly hairy missions you went on? I did the last one on the birthday, the 12th of December, and that was that was the uh, last one of the 30. Yeah. And that weren't enemy action; that was weather. And we was we come we had to go over. I remember we had to go over the French Alps, and that was really bad. The weather was. I think the weather was about the worst thing there was what was about it really. Mm. Apart from over the target, of course you got a lot of flag and I mean I used to sit in the gander in the old red town and think how the hell did we get through that lot, you know, because that was just one mass of of, of anti aircraft shells bursting all everywhere. But uh, we got through it anyway. That was that was a bad night when we come home that night. Hoilbron, Hoilbron. H-E-O-L-B-R-O-N, I remember. That, the weather clamped down, that was thick fog. We had flu, I flew home in thick fog all the way. Because our pilot was... Well, I suppose he was one of the best, really. He, he wouldn't vary from what he was told mm-hmm. at briefing. If he was briefed to go 12,000 feet, he'd go 12,000 feet. But some of them, apparently, they, they went up and they went above that storm. That was a storm where they went oh, above it. But we never, we went through, right through the very middle. Yeah. And then the, uh, there was uh, flashes of lightning running along the, the good barrels of the guns and shooting off the head. Or, or a pair, well, that pair looked like. Yeah. Yeah, and, and ice was cracking off the wing. You'd hear the old ice cracking off the wing. Gosh. Then, uh, at the beginning of the war... Claude was in a protected occupation in the early days um, because he was in agriculture and didn't have to go and fight immediately. He served in the Home Guard, or what I think in America is probably called the Army Reserve, I'm not sure. But uh, he was often guarding a block of apartments and uh, sadly he didn't have a gun to shoot but something else, which you're going to find out about. So uh, here goes. I was only there a fortnight, and I was, I was put on down these flats at night. Right. And he said, now, if you see a car coming down there with headlights... Don't let them see your broom. No, he said, <laughs> that'll be the orderly officer. Oh, right, yes. Come to check up, you see. He yeah. said, now, all you do is you just stand there, salute him, let him go past, he'll do what he got to do, then come back, yeah. Said, oh, right. he said, but for Christ's sake, he said, stand rotation and salute him, see. So, why, well, I, I stood there, and of course, he would have to come when I was on, wouldn't he? Why come the thing with these, and the, the so headlights then had these masks on, didn't it? it was yes. just slots. So, he, why come this officer? You, and so I jumped to attention and saluted him and let him walk past and he got about five, six steps past and come back. Right. And uh, he said, are you on guard? I said, yeah, with, with this broomstick. So he said, why did you let me through? Well, I... I said, you're an officer, I, 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 I had to salute you and let, let you go through. Yeah. He said, you didn't, you didn't uh, challenge me at all, did you? I said, no, I didn't challenge nobody. He said, I could have been a German. Yes, yeah. See? He said, you should have said, hold, who goes there? Mm-hmm. I said, well, 
<laughs> and I thought I had a good mind to say well the sergeant never told me that <laughs> because I didn't and yeah and I got put on charge of insubordination did you <laughs> the bloody officer oh honestly is it I haven't got enough to do eh <laughs> <laughs> yeah Listener, I'm about to draw to a close, but before I do and before you uh, stick on fast forward and disappear, uh, I've got one little postscript, if you like, uh, to finish the episode off. It's a little bit of information about Arthur Oxley, which you may recall was killed during the Battle of Wadi Akarit, and Dad was called upon to bury Arthur, and uh, him and his colleague put... Arthur's body or the bits of it under a cairn of stones in rather a remote place and uh, dad remarked at the time whether or not uh, he thought the body would ever be recovered well I've got some good news because in subsequent years dad did track down Arthur's body or his location and he found out in the end he was indeed uh, in reinterred in Esfax Cemetery in Tunisia. So uh, if I my worldly travels ever take me as far as Tunisia, I will certainly try and get to the Esfax Cemetery myself and uh, pay my respects to Arthur's grave. So there you go, listener. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, first half of the show. The next half will actually be listed as episode 19 and if you're listening to this on international podcast day or the day after i promise i'm going to try and get episode 19 out very very quickly so uh, help to maintain the momentum so for now thank you for listening i'm paul Cheel saying bye bye now mm-hmm.